The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And you remember that we are examining Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church, and this was a church that was one of Paul's favorites. It was a good, solid, evangelistic church that was preaching the gospel. And we noted, uh, after reading of the founding of this church in Acts 17, that conditions didn't seem favorable, that this this church would turn out to be very much, And yet we find the apostle writing to them with high praise for their testimony of faith. The story in the book of Acts is that Paul was driven out of town after only a short time there. And so he didn't have time to ground the church in in the word. But he had reached a small core of believers while he was there. And this this small group became the nucleus of of a vibrant church and a vibrant missionary group. They loved the gospel, and although they knew very little, they knew how they were saved, and they knew the joy of living the Christian life and knowing Christ as the Savior, and so they were willing to tell other people about that joy and how they could have it as well. But by the time that Paul wrote this letter, they were wearing down, they had become discouraged, and they needed to know how they could reconcile the suffering, the persecution they were going through. How could they reconcile that with the hope that Christ would return for them? These troubles came to light when Timothy was sent back to check on the church. And he came back with a glowing report of their faith, but also about issues that concern them. And Paul wrote to help them to understand that because their faith was real and they had proved to be the people of God and because God had chosen them to salvation, the always faithful God would see them through to the end. He will hold us fast. Now in several messages we've noted Paul's argument for the basis of their assurance is grounded in this great doctrine of election. Because God called them To salvation, God is sure to complete that calling. And so Paul goes on with several proofs to show them they are indeed God's elect. And we see these in verses 4 through 10. So if you look at your Bible there, beginning in verse number 4, he says, Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, But also in every place, your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come." 
Now, since this is our third message about proofs, we've covered a lot of territory and too much for me to, to review in detail. But we talked about several proofs that are in this text that cause Paul to say, yes, you were chosen by God. And this is the way that I know that you were chosen. And what are the proofs that he speaks of? Well, they'd heard the truth of the gospel because he, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, had brought them the true word, and they believed that word. They accepted the word as it was indeed the word of God spoken through the apostle, the very words of God as God would speak them himself. And, and they repented of their sins and they became followers of Paul. That is, they looked at his life and they saw what the Christian life is and how a person should live after the principles of the gospel. And they began to follow Paul as he followed Christ. In the third verse of this chapter, he said, you have marks of true believers. He spoke of their faith and their love and their endurance. That though they were shaken... Though there were troubles, they were still holding on because this is always true of believers in Jesus Christ. We never lose our faith. We never lose that. It's always there. True believers will always endure it to the end. Well, we covered those areas and I want to continue uh, this morning our discussion in the fifth part of our outline. How did Paul know that their faith was real? And our fifth reason is because their lives were changed. Our reference is verse number 9 where Paul said, Ye turn from idols to serve the living and true God. So proof of their profession is they had abandoned worshiping the dead idols that they served, the old religion they were in, and they turned to serve the living and the true God. And they proved that by giving up the perverse religion they lived in, and they started to live holy lives. And that wasn't an insignificant change. Because that religion they lived in, the worship they had, was riddled with some of the grossest, perverted sexual sins that you can imagine. Worship included both male and female prostitution. They satisfied their sensual desires. And in scripture we see that homosexual activity, these kinds of things, are considered to be the vilest and most debasing of all human works. And these people lived in that culture. They were saturated with it. So that's all that they knew. But God can change hearts. God can bring people out of that. He can reverse the effects of the fall that causes people to debase themselves. And that's what happened in Thessalonica. It also happened in Corinth. They were changed. They were made new in Christ. And their old sinful lives were left behind. A few days ago I was reading an article about how our culture has changed on the issue of sexual immorality. And of course, all of us are very much aware of it. We see it happening around us. And this article explained how the dating scene in America has changed. So much so that I'm not even sure that the word dating uh, is the word they use any longer. I don't even know if that's proper anymore. But the article said that today is the day of the hookup. That is, that young people are not dating for marriage and others are not dating for marriage. But an invitation to go out with someone on what we used to call a date is an invitation with a certain expectation that sex will go with it. Sex isn't linked to marriage any longer. 
People don't save themselves, preserve themselves for, for marriage and their sexual activity. And our society is constantly fed with a different morality through television and movies and books and music. It trumps up the idea of sex and you can have it any time that you want it. And so when we raise our children with Christian biblical influences, our children enter into a world where their, those ideas of morality are completely foreign to them. The world doesn't recognize it. And by the time that a girl or a boy is past the teenage years, or even in the teenage years, they've already had sexual encounters. God's Word is against that immorality, no matter what the culture says. God is against that. And when God saves, the Holy Spirit must reverse the social mores that we're used to. It makes us different people. And these Thessalonians that were immersed in that sinful culture were saved out of it. And so they left their old life behind. And so when Paul said, you have turned from idols, what he does, he's really giving a power-packed statement there. Power-packed. It has deep meaning. Their minds were divinely changed and that resulted in a complete overhaul of their lifestyle. And that's what happens to people today when they come to know Christ as Savior. When they do, this is what happens. They forsake the old immoral lifestyle. They forsake the cultural norms. They forsake what the world says is okay. And they go after what God says in His Word. Well, Paul expected that he would see that kind of change in all believers. And he said, if that change is not there, you don't know Christ. He said, you better dig a little bit deeper. You better look harder to see if you have really believed. He did say that also to the Corinthian church. Some of them had gone back into their immorality. And he told them, closely examine yourself. There is a test of Christianity that proves that you're in the faith. Be sure that you take that test and see if you have believed. Now today we're going to veer away from positive proofs that we're saved to look at negative proofs that we may not be. Both sides need to be examined in the test of faith. Now I want us to return to that little saying that we talked about last week, the one that Baptists love to use, the one that says, once saved, always saved. Baptists love to use that, but I'm just afraid there's too much confidence in it. The saying is often truer than the person's profession. You see, we believe that we are justified by faith alone, and we keep preaching that. We keep preaching faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. But just as Martin Luther said, we are not justified by a faith that is alone. And we need to understand that difference, that faith is always accompanied by evidence. And that evidence does not save us, but if it's not there, we're not saved. And that's what Luther meant. We're saved by a faith that is not alone. So justifying faith always results in a life that is different than it was before. It's a life that's saturated with different desires, with, with different thoughts and different motives. And so in essence, it's a faith that will make a different person. And this is the crux of the examination. Are you a different person? Is your life going in a different direction? Do you still do the things that you used to do? Have you only put on a Christian facade, but your heart's not really different? Well, we're going to look at this by 
examining Jesus' teaching in his greatest sermon. So I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7, and we find Jesus' remarks on this subject in the Sermon on the Mount. And as he ended his sermon, he, he gave a strong warning about false profession. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's purpose was to build assurance. He was dealing with discouraged Christians, uh, Christians that had marks of true belief but didn't quite understand it all. And so he wanted them to be encouraged as they examined their lives. But we notice in Matthew 7 there's a different tact in Jesus' teachings because he was dealing with scribes and Pharisees and with people who thought they were saved but they're only pretenders. So he's not speaking here to build up assurance. He's trying to tear down their assurance so they realize their worst fear. They are not saved. They are not the people of God. They need to be humbled. And they must come to him in repentance and faith. This part of Matthew 7 is about self-deception. And this is the worst of all Satan's devices, the self-deception. Because when Satan deceives this way, he fools the religious and the non-religious alike. People who think that they're okay, who think everything is fine, won't listen because they think they've already found the key to all of this, the key to eternal life. Jesus begins with warnings about false prophets. We've already said that before a person can believe... He must hear the truth. He must hear the truth to be saved. And the false prophet does not give people truth. They tell lies that take souls to hell. And he said these false prophets are like wolves in sheep's clothing. He meant that their lives betray who they actually are, who they really are. They are, they are really uh, evil in their lifestyles. And why they say that they believe and they are the prophets of God, they're actually very evil people. And he said, evil works always come from an evil heart. If you look there at verse number 19, he said, a tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down. And he compares that to evil unbelievers that God will cut down and cast into the fires of hell. But here's what he wants us to be aware of. That the false teacher has followers. And the followers follow them despite the evil lives of that false teacher. And they're convinced that these false teachers are the true men and women of God. And so the follower says the leader is in the faith. The leader is in the faith. And we are also in the faith. And so we're fine. And on the last day when they meet God... When they see him face to face, they believe they'll step right through those pearly gates and walk on the streets of gold and everything will be okay. But we see in these verses that Jesus spoke how they will be received when they get to the judgment of God. He says in Matthew 7 verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Those are the most frightening words that anyone can hear. These Words are spoken when it's too late to change course. It's too late to do it over. 
It's too late to turn back and become a believer. These people enter eternity self-deceived. And they're going to be in hell forever. Many of them sat in church pews and they heard sermons and they sang songs and they prayed prayers. And they walked aisles and they went down into baptistries and they were sprinkled when they were babies or whatever. And they thought everything is okay, but in their hearts there is no change. Look at verses 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate. Narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few, and you might want to underline that word, few there be that find it. And that tells us that there are more people in this condition than we think. There are millions of people that are in churches and they believe they are safe and secure. And they recite that, once saved, always saved, or they have some other credo that they live by. But do you see, Jesus says, few find eternal life. They aren't saved. They aren't safe. They're self-deceived. And I am sad to say that there may be some in Berean Baptist Church that are like this. I don't think that we're in danger of the false prophet. I hope I've taught you to recognize the truth. But do you understand that even with the truth taught on every Sunday, there are still some self-deceived. Now to hit straight back into the point, The way to gain assurance and the way to prove that you are a child of God is to seriously examine your life. That you must show some evidence of a life-changing experience of the faith. And if what you speak from your heart is different from the holiness of the indwelling of the Spirit of God, then you're not a Christian. Jesus said in the introduction to his sermon, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart are the true believers. The tree is good, the fruit is good, the tree stands, it will be preserved because that fruit is from a tree that God planted and from a tree that the Holy Spirit watered. That heart is purified by faith and that faith is real because it works the works of God. Notice there again, verse number 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but who? Those who do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. That doesn't even sound like a Baptist verse. What do you mean, those who do the will of God? Something you do? You know, we're so used to divorcing faith from works, we can hardly even use the same in the two, same, uh, those in the same sentence. Not by works. We're afraid of confusing faith and works, and so we push the works aside, and we never talk about doing anything. I remember our discussion from last week that many converts are claimed in the soul-winning church, but they're not true believers. And it's obvious they're not because the conversion did nothing to them. They were assured of their salvation when they have no cause to be. Let me give you an example of the problem. The editor of a fundamental Baptist periodical wrote, We must not confuse the requirements for discipleship with the requirements for salvation. Every disciple is a believer, but every believer is not a disciple. Can you imagine Jesus would make that statement? Would he say to anyone, I'll save you whether you follow me or not. I'll save you. Can you find one type like that in the Bible? There aren't any of those. 
But I can find plenty that he turned away because they wouldn't follow him. They wouldn't become disciples. And I regret to say this, but a Baptist who feeds people false hope that they don't meet the requirements for discipleship, and yes, they, yet they say, oh, you're, you can be saved, he is guilty of fostering self-deception. Well, let's go on to examine the problem. We want to look at the check marks of false profession. Check marks of false profession. And what I would propose to you as the first check mark of a false profession is a verbal commitment without functional commitment. I say that I follow Christ, but you can't tell it. You can't actually see it. A verbal commitment without functional commitment. These are people that say they believe in Christ. They've prayed the soul winner's perfect dream. The soul winner, the, the sinner's prayer. Maybe they show up at church for Easter and Christmas. Maybe they're a little bit more regular. Maybe they don't even show up at all. And if they do go to church, their home lives and their work lives and their recreation lives are different from their church life. And they say they're Christians, but they're not. There isn't a Christian who's not a disciple. Folks, if you are not now in the sanctifying process by the Holy Spirit, you have reason for concern. You need to look at your life. You are the subject of Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. You are deceived. And rather than gathering, gathering, getting assurance for your salvation here, Jesus wants to destroy that assurance and awaken you to that self-deception. Well, there are several types of these false Christians. I mentioned the Easter and the Christmas Christians. There are also the liturgical Christians. These are the ones that can recite all the liturgies of their faith, but it's nothing but a cold, dead formalism. It means nothing to them. There isn't anything in the heart. There are also fully faking Christians. These are ones that put on a show, but they know they aren't Christians. We're not even going to call them self-deceived because they're purposely putting on a show. Verbally, they say they are, but they fool uh, other people, but they know they're not really true believers. And I'm going to leave that category alone here because even though it's a real category, these aren't the ones that Jesus speaks of in this passage. But rather, what he's dealing with is the most dangerous of all conditions, and that is the faith in faith Christians. These are those that have faith in the fact that they have faith. They have professed faith, and their faith is in the profession. Many of these are the once saved, always saved professors, but they have one glaring problem. They're not once saved. Those are Christians that fill many of our churches. They walked aisles. They shook the preacher's hand. They knelt at the steps that somebody told them was an altar. They came when Just As I Am was in its 35th repetition of the first verse. And they came and they got dunked. And their assurance is not Christ. They're assured because of their activity. They came, they walked, and they cried. They responded to the pastor's tear-jerking story at the end. Or the fourth or fifth of those stories... And the preacher said, I'm not going to stop until one more comes. And they're one more of the one more that came. Folks, I, I'm not playing with you. Some of them do get saved. But I'm afraid there are too many of them have just had an emotional experience. And they were told by the preacher, don't let anybody tell you that you're not saved. They're never asked to examine their faith. 
They only examine that they have faith in faith. They did something that looks like believing in Christ. The aisle, the steps, the handshake, the baptistry. The good old Baptist preacher said, once saved, always saved. And that's their only assurance. Now we keep dancing around this verse in 2 Corinthians. And I've used it, uh, repeated it a few times in these messages. But we've not looked at it closely. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And I would like for you to turn there. 2 Corinthians 13. The Bible never tells us to put aside inquiries about our salvation because of this once saved, always saved doctrine. Though it's true, once we have been saved, we'll always be saved. That saying is not a brick wall that inquiries can't penetrate. This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in chapter 13. Let's look at verse number 1. He said, this is the third time that I'm coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being now absent, now I, I, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all other, that if I come again, I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Then verse 5. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? What's going on in these verses? Twice before, Paul had addressed the Corinthian church. He said, this is the third time that I've come to you. The first time was his personal appearance. That's when he went to Corinth. He spent 18 months uh, preaching and teaching the word of God, showing them the faith. Then the second time was in a letter. That's in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Sin had crept into the church, and so he wrote a letter of correction. Now he says, for the third time, which is the second letter that he writes to them, for a third time, I've got to go over the same issues. You're still living in sin, only this time they doubt his authority. They were converted under the greatest missionary, the greatest evangelistic apostle the world has seen, but now they have doubts about his authority. Now, can you imagine that? Here they are, they're living in sin. They're, they're assured, they think of their own salvation, though they are living in sin, and they doubt Paul's salvation. Oh, the times that I've seen this. That my problem is not me, my problem is you. My problem is the preacher. It's the preacher's fault that, that I'm like this. The preacher did this or the preacher did that and because of your failures or whatever it might be. It's the preacher's fault because I am the way that I am. That's what they said about Paul. You're just not good enough, Paul. You haven't taught enough truth. And so people try to throw it back on the pastor. This time he says, if I have to come back there, I'm going to show you who has authority. I will not spare you. Here is an apostle with the authority of Christ. And folks, that is frightening. In 1 Timothy, he said, I have turned some over to Satan that they'll learn not to blaspheme. I, tell, I don't know what all that means, but I can tell you it's not good. Paul said he lived by the power of God. I'm sure that he did. He said, you don't want to test that. So he goes on in verse number 5, with the authority of an apostle 
to say, examine yourselves, whether you're in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves. How that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. What is, or who is, the reprobate? Well, certainly not Paul. He has plenty of proof. Now, he says, you had better put yourself to the test. And in this verse, he's giving them a little bit of Jesus in the way that Jesus taught in Matthew 7. And he says to them, some of you say, Lord, Lord, but you are reprobates. You better examine to see if you are a reprobate. Now, do you understand reprobate? Do you know what that means? It means cast off. It means separated, thrown away from God. It's the same as what Jesus said in Matthew 7. The bad tree is cut down and thrown into the fire. And that's what happens to the reprobate, to that false, professing, self-deceived Christian. Now, what did Paul tell them to examine? We see it in the last part of the verse. How that Christ is in you. How do you tell that Christ is in you? And isn't that the whole point of this discussion? The only way that you can know that Christ is in you is by your obedience to him. Do you obey? Is he your Lord? Is there any proof that you obey him? It's the opposite of the fundamental Baptist newspaper. And why? Because if Christ is not in you, you're not saved. Christ in you means that you meet the requirements of discipleship. That discipleship and salvation are one and the same. True, justifying faith produces fruits of discipleship. And if there is no evidence of that, then the very best that I can do for you is to destroy all the confidence that you have in your false profession. And I've got to ruin your confidence, at least get it down to this level, that you'll examine what you think that you are. And if you're self-deceived and you stay that way, You'll see Christ on the last day, and at the judgment, he'll say, Depart from me. I never knew you. In Philippians 2.12, he said, Paul said, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. Don't work for it. But work it out in your life. If that truth is in you, it'll work out of you. It will be evident. Holiness, that's the product of true belief. So examine your life. What do you do? How do you act? What are your desires? An honest evaluation will prove you are a child of God or you are a reprobate. Arthur Pink made this sobering comment many years ago. He said, we seriously doubt whether there has ever been a time in the history of the Christian era when there were such multitudes of deceived souls within the churches who verily believe that all is well with their souls when, in fact, the wrath of God abideth on them. And we know of no single thing better calculated to undeceive them than a full and faithful exposition of these closing verses of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Pink said that maybe 70 years ago. Do you think this problem has improved? I don't think so. Many are, are sitting in the pews of Baptist churches and they're, and they're sitting there relying on something they did in the past. They have faith that they professed faith. And that assurance is false because it's not grounded in the same markers that Paul saw in Thessalonica. The least likely to be concerned about their salvation are the ones that are the most difficult to reach. These are faith in faith 
Christians who rely on their baptism and they rely on their church attendance and they rely on that, that aisle that they walk. They rely on their Christianized actions and they don't listen to evangelistic gospel sermons anymore because they think they don't need them. Why should they? And they've heard so much preaching on eternal security. They think we can never be lost. And that's the danger of accepting eternal security alone. That is the preservation side of the doctrine without the other side. And that's the perseverance side of the doctrine. God requires perseverance. And so if this is you, if your faith is in that aisle that you walked, the preacher that greeted you at the steps, the prayer that you prayed when you knelt there, or water that flooded over you, if your faith is in those things rather than Christ, then you're not saved. Now let me go on. I'm not going to finish this today, but I want to mention a second check mark of false profession. Number two is head knowledge without heart knowledge. Now we're going to drive down to some important doctrinal stuff. And we need to clearly understand what saving faith is. But before we get down to that, I'm going to finish today by just whetting your appetite a little. This is not very deep. This won't be very profound. But this is true nonetheless. I know there are many of you that were saved in your adult life. You weren't raised in church. Maybe you were, but you were raised in Catholicism or some variation. And it wasn't until you were much older that you heard the gospel and then you understood how to be saved. And I don't want to give the wrong impression of this, but I think many of your testimonies and your lives are more convincing than someone like me. And I mean someone who was raised in church, came up in church, saved as children. And I can see how some of you saved later in life. You have become solid rocks in the church. There's a very clear distinction between your old life and your new life in Jesus Christ. And you're the ones that carry on the work of the church. And it's evident, plainly evident, that there's something different and has happened to you. But I want to address the other group. And that's, that's the group that includes me. And bear with me on this because this will introduce us into this second check mark that we'll discuss further next week. I want to speak now to the church kids. Maybe you're not kids now, but you once were a church kid. You were raised in church like me. Some of you have known nothing else but church. You were brought to church when you were a baby. When you were born, the church nursery was the place where you slept. You grew up in church. That's me. And I like you because you're like me. I, I was saved when I was seven years old. My father was a preacher who was saved about four years before he became the pastor of his first church. And shortly after that, I was born. And uh, after I was born, I was sort of like the church baby. I mean, I was so sweet. How could I not be loved and adored by all? And the first place that I was taken outside of home was to the church. My name was on the cradle roll of the South Broadway Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky. And shortly after my enrollment in the nursery on the cradle roll, uh, that church had to kiss me goodbye with bitter tears because my dad became the pastor of his own church. And uh, that was in the hills of Kentucky. Soon that little church became a vibrant, growing church. And I was in that church until I was... 10 years old and I still remember the day at seven years old that I was sitting there listening to my dad preach and I couldn't 
listen any longer. I couldn't sit any longer. I had to tell my dad that I wanted to receive Christ as my Savior. And so I was saved and I was baptized in January of 1962. Our church didn't have a baptistry, small country church, so we baptized in the creek. But it's January, and it's really, really cold in Kentucky in January. If I'd been baptized in the creek, I would have come up a popsicle. So what the church did was we would go into the uh, Baptist church that was in town. They had a baptistry, and we would have our baptismal services there in the wintertime. So we would gather up all the church. All the church would go over on a Sunday afternoon, and we'd go to that church, and we would baptize people. And that's how I, got, I was baptized. I was baptized in the church in a baptistry. But I remember when I walked down those wooden stairs into the water that uh, I stepped off that last step, and I was too small to touch the bottom. And I thought, surely I'm going to drown here. And my dad just grabbed me with his strong arms, and he held me up. He missed a beautiful opportunity to get rid of me then, but he held me up and uh, baptized me. And today when I baptize, I always say this to the children when I baptize, I, I promise you I will bring you back up. I haven't lost one. I hope you aren't the first. We're going to, we'll do our best. As a kid, I listened in church. Most of the time, I listened. I, I remember sitting on the front row of the church on one Sunday morning. The church was packed as usual. All the seats are filled. And I was sitting there on the front row with two of my friends, and one of them just leaned over to me and whispered a joke in my ear. That was the funniest joke I ever heard. And I just burst out loud laughing, and I bent over laughing and couldn't stop. And my dad was preaching, and he just stopped preaching. And he said, you go back and sit with your mother. I knew what that meant. I would go back and sit with her for a little while, and then afternoon would come, and be a long time before I could sit again. I knew what dad was going to do. I was a good kid in church, except when I wasn't. You know that feeling. So let me, tell you, let me tell you something about saved kids in the church. You might see them do something wrong. You may see them fall asleep. You may see them doodle on the listening sheets. They're kids. And when you get saved, you don't just suddenly stop doing kid things. You still do kid stuff. It's a different story when you become an adult, hopefully, isn't it? Some of you forget that, that I have eagle eyes from this pulpit. I see all of you. I see when you sleep. I see it. And, and the doodles and all of that. Uh, Linda comes and collects the listening sheets that people live, leave on the pews. And I know that she wondered sometimes, I know that that's not a kid that did that. that. That is an adult that did that. If you fall asleep in church and you can't stop the doodling and all of that, we need, probably need to talk a little bit. But kids do kid things. I appreciate those who grew up in church as church kids. But I want to tell you that there are some church kids that fit in to both of these categories we've talked about today. Both of them fit into the check marks, or they fit into both of these check marks of a false profession. They have grown up with a verbal commitment, but not a functional commitment to Christ. They've grown up with head knowledge, but without heart knowledge of faith in Christ. Sometimes their parents are convinced they're saved. 
Sometimes the kids are convinced they're saved. They experience something. They, they were always in church growing up, and so it's like they're saved because the church atmosphere saved them. And here's the terrible part of this. They grew up, and they got out of church, and they don't come any longer. They don't have any interest in going to church. Maybe you can talk them into coming on Mother's Day. Maybe they'll show up for Christmas Eve candlelight service. Beyond that, the church means nothing to them. The question is, how do you treat that child? Oh, you want to believe they're saved. Surely you do. But there is no evidence. The thing that you hang your hat on is what they did in the past. They came to church when they were made to. They were there with their obligatory church attendance and they made their profession. But now you can look at their lives and you can honestly say, there's nothing there. There's nothing there that actually shows that they did believe. What do you think that Paul or Jesus would conclude about that kind of faith? I know what they would conclude because I've just read it and you've read it too. So how would Paul tell you that you need to treat that child? I think he would tell you you need to treat them like a mission field. You need to treat them that they're not saved. Don't try to convince yourself, oh, that child is just backslidden. You need to start thinking about their soul. They're people that need to be saved. Maybe not in all cases, but that's how you got to start on this thing. That, that's your tactic here. Start talking to them like somebody who is an unbeliever. Because you can't afford to leave them that way. You can't afford to leave them to where they're going to stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment. And he'll say, depart from me, I don't know you. Many of them will say in the last day, Lord, Lord, I grew up in church. Lord, Lord, my mama told me I was saved. Lord, way back then, I professed, I was baptized. And the question is, what does your life say now? You can't rely on the past. What does your life say now? Because those who are true believers don't depart. True believers stay in. Believers act like believers. And if you don't, then you need to be shocked out of your assurance. And folks, if that describes you or it describes your children, I want you to lose all confidence in that kind of salvation. All confidence in that because I don't want to see you stand before God in the last day and he'll say, I never knew you. What is the proof that you truly are a child of God? Better that you find out now than you find out then when it's too late. Do you have a head knowledge or is it a heart knowledge? It's vital It is vital that you know the difference between those two things. Is it a head knowledge or is it a heart knowledge? One will save you, the other will condemn you forever. Where is the proof? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who has self-deceived, who is convinced... They are true believers, but there is no proof. Or they have children that that are living away from you and they've done this for so long and they care nothing about church. Lord, help us to be very, very concerned about this, about whether they are true believers in you. Help us to examine that, not to let that go on, not to leave it as it is, but to start on this. If we have kids or people in our own families that show no proofs of Christianity, why aren't we starting there with them? And we need to be concerned about them as much 
or even more than those who are out of the world that we don't even know. Lord, let's make sure our own houses know Jesus Christ as Savior. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. Encourage us in the faith. If we know that we're saved, then give us the confidence that we are. Let us see the proof. Let us own that proof. And Lord, we truly truly do believe that those with faith in Christ have the evidence. Help us to see the evidence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.